Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. Barbara Brown Taylor says that it wasn't until she began digging into the faith of those who didn't share hers that she really began to understand her own. It was this journey towards meeting God in, quote, so many new hats that ignited her holy envy. The title of her new book, published in the UK by Canterbury Press. Martin Rose sat down with Barbara Brown Taylor at the Church Times offices to talk about the book, which is available from the Church Times bookshop at £15.29. An edited version of the interview is printed in our first summer book supplement, which comes with this Friday's Church Times. The 12-page supplement includes holiday reading recommendations from contributors such as Paula Gooder, Malcolm Geit, Bishop Stephen Cottrell and Eve Poole. There are also reviews of fiction, non-fiction and spiritual titles. In what ways has your own faith changed as a result of immersing yourself and students in different faith traditions to your own? My answers change to that. But as I think about the process of writing the book, it's clear that I went deeper into my faith than I have been in in a long time. You'll have to fix those double in-ins. because I was asked questions I'd never been asked before. Questions Christians would never have thought to ask me, even Christians of my own tribe. So that is a huge heritage of it. And then also some very appropriate uh, leveling of myself with people of other faiths, hearing from them about their encounters with Christians of different kinds in the past and how humiliating that had been for some of them, for others to have assumed they'd never had a thought Mm. about the divine. Mm or a way of life you know that that was a life of justice and mercy so so i've gone deeper into my faith than ever before um, i have experienced an appropriate leveling of of my neighborliness with people of other faiths and i think it's put me on a path now of endless questioning uh, wondering curiosity and it feels very full of life hmm. i went through a period of fear came out the other side into a period of of um, wonderful life, lifeliness. Good. I'm going to come back to that. So if you think of the book as your kind of odyssey into faith communities that you weren't intimate with, can you illustrate how you are a different kind of believer now from then? So from the, end of the, from the beginning of the book to the end of the book, are there any specific examples in which you think, this is how I'm different? I have endless examples of how I'm different. I went in so confident that as a clergy person with four years of, seven years of education and 15 years in parish ministry that I was very competent to teach introductory courses in religion, including my own. (laughs) Um, So the first thing that went away was that confidence. Uh, I learned about more plurality among Christians than I'd ever been aware of. Found out how many Christian languages there were, Mm -hmm. Pentecostal and and holiness and Seventh-day Adventist and Jehovah's Witnesses, which Christians don't include, you know, nor Mormons. So huge variety there, which, which both matched and woke me up to the diversity in the other religions that the students and I studied really together. I yeah. hardly led them. I walked alongside them. So in many ways, initiation into the wider than ever diversity of Christian belief and practice helped me appreciate the wide diversity in belief and practice in the other traditions we studied. Yeah. Okay, so if I'm going to drill down even more specifically, is there an example of something that you no longer bother about? 
Oh, this is going to get me in so much trouble. But I no That's longer bother with Christian beliefs that have no practical usefulness. So if people want to argue about Jesus' virgin birth, they're so happy. I mean, they can do that, but I, I have other things I need to do. I'll get to that later. Yeah. So I'm most interested you know, in um, Christian beliefs that, that actually improve my life or give me more life, let me put it that way, mm-hmm. um, and, and the people I'm with. And what about something that you've adopted or become open to as a result of this journey? Oh, probably like every other Christian in the United States, Buddhist meditation, <laughs> you know, Buddhist stillness. It's such an antidote to a crazy culture. And, and also, a Buddhist wouldn't call it theology, but the sort of Buddhist teaching that invites me to experiment with the truths and decide if they're true or not. I, mm. I never experienced that in my tradition. Mm. My tradition told me to believe things beyond belief and mm. not to ask questions, mm-hmm. at least early on, before I became Anglican. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas now you're much more comfortable with um, feeling out uh, beliefs and ideas and traditions and see if, it, see if they work for you, see if I'm, they resonate. I'm more open to meeting other human beings and letting okay. them tell me about, about the sacred and their experience yeah. of the sacred and their troubles with the sacred. So I'm not open to beliefs and practices unless they're embodied. But once they're embodied individually or in community, I'm all in. I want to know all about it. So that's interesting. So you're interested in... The, the communication horizontally with uh, people in other faith traditions on similar journeys but different journeys. I have come to see Christianity is a planet. Turns yeah. out it's in a galaxy. Yeah. Turns out the galaxy is in a universe. Yeah. And that means I've become, um, to, to push the metaphor too far, a great astronomer. Yeah. Very interested in all the, all the various ways human beings have thought about and approached the divine through a couple millennia. Well, here's a different metaphor. I read the other day, what I think is a rather brilliant quote was someone saying that tradition is peer pressure from the dead. (laughs) I'll write that down after we're finished. (laughs) Because sometimes we stay with the way things are because they've always been this way and we were told to be this way. Whereas you're saying, actually, I'm having conversations with other people who are present in my life now and I'm moderating what was always this way. Mm It's true. I have a I have an equally wonderful quote that I can't remember right now. <laughs> yeah. Many Christians approach what are called world religions, not unlike one of your early students who said, "Are you going to help us see what is wrong with these other religions?" So you, that's a mistake. People are welcome to do that. I think it's a losing battle. Uh, I mean, then next we'll decide whether apples are right and oranges are wrong and whether science is right and religion is wrong. And then we'll decide whether people of color are right and white people are wrong. And then we'll decide whether you know, cisgender people are mm-hmm. right and other gendered people are wrong. I mean, if, if right and wrong are satisfying categories, I have found they cut me off from more people every time I engage in the right and wrong. So while I'm naturally curious about those categories, they have only narrowed my sense of community and the number of friends I have. So why would I, why would I continue to go there? So your move is away from an in-out model. Because the tradition of the church has been, you're in or you're out. I know. And, and see, another thing I've gone further into is my own Christian mystical tradition. I've gone right back to a lot of the medieval mm. saints. I've even gone to, a, a, I consider Simone Weil a mystic, who, who finally refused baptism in the Catholic Church, to which she was powerfully drawn, as long as there was a doctrine of, of salvation 
only within the church. So she stood at the door of the church in my image mm-hmm, of her mm-hmm. so that she didn't go into a place others were kept out of or, or chose not to go to their eternal damnation. <clears throat> um, but, but neither did she go away. It seems like a faithful place to be. Mm-hmm. So on this, on this little uh, progression, some people start out saying, tell us what is wrong with those other religions. Other people say, let's study those other religions so we understand them from our perspective. But you've come to a point where you've said, no, let's understand what the people inside those religions mean by their religions rather than what I think they mean by their religions. And there's one or two good examples in the book. Uh, and that's, that's a good summation. And, and I would add also that I will never understand other religions. My worldview is so embedded in me, but, but what I can do is practice the teachings of my own religion, which have a great deal to say about neighborliness and crossing boundaries and, uh, and taking the log out of my own eye before I examine the speck in someone else's. My religion is full of teachings that put me into neighborly or dare me into neighborly relationships with people of other faiths that I will never understand. You know, perhaps if one got triple PhDs you know, in, mm-hmm. in one of these world religions, they could take five steps into understanding. But most people I know, for instance, are East Asian. PhDs or Middle Eastern PhDs, but they can't even put their arms around the whole universe of religion. So the point of uh, friendship is in practice rather than theory. The point of understanding, if you like, is in practice rather than than simply theory. Absolutely for me. I, I used to both believe and be taught that my theory, my Christian beliefs should determine my practice and especially my engagement with people who did not share my faith. I've reversed it now and it's my practice and my experience of other people that now shapes my theory or my belief. Mm. So that seems like a flip that someone in a religion of an incarnate God uh, should be happy with. The flesh corrects the doctrine. I love it. We're all walking hermeneutics. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Living human documents. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. Now, going back to the fear thing, you observe that many Christians fear exploring world religions in case it destabilizes their own religion. On the contrary, it has destabilized yours, but in a good way. Yes, I used to begin this college course telling students of any faith they need not fear losing their faith you know, in order to study the world's religions. And then I found out they did. (laughs) And so did I. But near the end of the book, I talk about, I think what we lost were our containers. Our containers, our stable ground under our Mm -hmm. feet, our certainty about the rightness of our own position. So to, to go on one single field trip to a place of someone else's devotion shifts one's view yeah. of, of an entire world tradition in one trip. 90 minutes can, can change uh, one's certain beliefs. I used to hand out a bumper sticker that said, don't believe everything you think, <laughs> and found out that students quite often wrote papers about that, all the things they had thought um, that they no longer believed because they had been welcomed into communities not their own by people who blessed them in their own traditions and said, please, if you came here Christian, go home Christian, be a better Christian. They couldn't believe they heard that from a Muslim imam. In relation to this, you suggest that people who are exploring other faiths should, quote, try to understand the dynamics of their own fear. Yes, 
Yeah, I, I'm going to propose we all should take psychology courses before we're allowed to become religious. Mm. <laughs> we, we should go study scapegoating and projection and groupishness and all the normal xenophobias that go yeah. with being human out of really old, old instincts to survive. Yeah. But until we understand how our minds work as human beings, it's very difficult to go into a religious faith and invite God to sanctify our fear of each other. Yeah. You know, to form whole theologies to sanctify our fear and yeah. suspicion of one another, which we have done. Yeah. But in the best sacred texts, there are also loopholes everywhere, escape hatches, you know, where the deity, it's usually himself, yeah. comes down with, with teachings about the stranger and the outsider yeah. and the, the angel of whom you're unaware. Yeah. And you mentioned that in Judaism in particular, in particular, there's this emphasis on the stranger more than the neighbor. Right, the righteous Gentile. I'd give anything for that concept in my own religious tradition, which honors the person who comes to me from outside my tribe, offers a God-given blessing on the tribe, like the Magi, yeah. you know, like Melchizedek. We won't go into a lot of deep yeah. biblical references, and then leave. Yeah. They leave. They don't yeah, become yeah, part yeah. of our tribe. They yeah. go back um, to where God planted them. But yeah. I don't have anything like that in my tradition. Yeah. One of the things you're saying is, listen, until I got into these other religions, I didn't understand my own religion. There you have it. And that's the best argument. Now, the, the good counter argument is, hello, but I'm a student who does not identify religiously. I'm humanist. Yeah. I'm atheist. I'm, I'm agnostic. Yeah. The numbers are fewer in the U.S. than they are in the U.K., yeah. but but there had then to be a way to, to teach religious literacy, to, yeah. to start underlining the literacy piece instead of the religion piece so that students who didn't identify could also say, there may be something here for me in, yeah. in what I choose to do for a living. But, but the way you just said it, um, is the best argument of all. If you are a person of faith, you will never understand yours as well as you will when you're speaking about it to someone of equally yeah. devoted faith. Yeah. As an example, um, our family in the last few years, we've got to know uh, um, a Syrian family because of the way the world is at the moment. So I, I, on, since Lent last year, I've been going every Friday to the mosque with him for Friday prayers. And I don't go as a form of education. I go as, because I'm his friend. And he knows I'm also devout. I feel like I'm immersed in that world and I'm learning stuff as it happens. Mm -hmm. But it's just a way of being a partner and a friend. And I'm also aware that I'm quite critical of some elements of their corporate religion, just as I am of the one I'm from. Sure. Isn't that helpful to realize that the problems of any tradition exactly. probably parallel the problems of another? Yeah. The patriarchy, for example. Uh-huh. Yeah. Now, at the same time, one of the things you learned in your immersion in other faiths was how people of other faiths see your faith. Mm -hmm. And there's a powerful moment when a Jewish reader writes to you about some of your earlier books and he talks about the language of contempt. And you hadn't clocked that until you suddenly saw it through his eyes. Now that's got to be uh, a gift to people, mm. to be able to see ourselves differently. Mm. But it was a shock to you at first. Oh, and it's a continuing shock. Yeah. Right now, religiously motivated hate crimes in the U.S. are more than half anti-Jewish. And, and Jews make up 2% of the American population, so you can see yeah. how out of whack it yeah. is. And, and I, I, I have no choice but to believe that um, Christian scripture, you know, the New Testament yeah. part of it, has 
been murderous yeah. for people. Uh, not in explicit ways, perhaps, because clergy who preach, say, the book of Hebrews or portions of the Gospels of John or Matthew are going to hit very anti-Jewish passages, also in the some of the works of Paul. And if we don't have someone from outside the tradition pointing to those, um, we'll continue to speak them as the divine truth. Yeah with this implicit bias that that floats so far below consciousness it's hard to grasp so yes this was a a jewish psychiatrist who wrote me and said he liked my work very much but he did notice that i was using the language of contempt and for listeners who may not or readers who don't know that's you know things like the burden of the law Mm -hmm. or the corruption of the pharisees and all the language the new testament gives christians uh, that needs to be re-examined immediately in the 21st century well, I noticed, because I'm a non-stipendary priest at a parish in North London, and I noticed a year or two ago when I was, when, when there were particular reasons we were using, I would change the language from the Jews to the religious leaders. Because immediately you use that phrase, mm-hmm. you just buy into people's underlying mm-hmm. racism, mm-hmm. underlying anti-Semitism, do you know what I mean? You do. And sometimes I think, you know, we're going to have to modify the text. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we just encourage it. And Judeans instead of Jews. I'll tell you, though, Amy Jill Levine, who's a scholar, she's a Jewish scholar of the New Testament. She yeah. teaches at Vanderbilt University. She's challenged me on religious leaders. Right. She says, you've got to put the corrupt toadies of the Romans. Okay. You know, because any religious, religious leaders who yeah. were in, in yeah. with the Romans on that were toadies. I don't know if that word works in the UK. But, but she shocked me again, yeah. you know, yeah. no more than a month ago. And she said, no, religious leaders doesn't help. Because guess what? religion you're, you're pointing at. Oh, yeah. Interesting, yeah. That the, when, when the Jewish reader, the psychiatrist writes this, this kind of, it marks a moment in your growing understanding, but there's a kind of, there's a climactic moment later, which I found really striking, which is when you're with a Jewish friend at a celebration of the Eucharist, and you choose, mm-hmm. in solidarity with your friend, not to receive the Eucharist, mm-hmm. which I thought was really powerful, but you're kind of... <laughs> denying God to, to affirm God. Yeah, well, it was a big what would Jesus do moment, uh-huh. right? Would, yeah. would Jesus stand with the Jew who had lost generations of family in the Holocaust mm-hmm. and who found the blood of Christ a terrifying thought? Mm-hmm. Or would Jesus say, sorry, I'm stepping away for a moment and I'll be right back. So, so I've heard from yeah. so many readers, though, who had similar stories. I've begun to feel not as unusual as I thought I was at that moment. I've heard from a lot of people who, in very different circumstances, with very different kind of people they were with, um, declining that evening from a Christian celebration that excluded others. Mm. But I, I, I thought it was a really good illustration of where this journey takes you, because if you're going to see your faith from the perspective of others, sometimes it'll mean you change your faith periodically. You would, you adapt your practice. Yeah, and it's Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. One of my favorite quotes mm-hmm. is, any kind of peace involves a profound crisis of identity. So even in the classroom, I had to talk about skid marks, you know, the places as students explored other traditions, when did they put on the brakes really hard? Because that was probably more fruitful than their very pleasant, uncomplicated interactions with other people. But, but when they hit a wall, to stop and think both about whether the wall was from their own perceptive side, were they seeing something like a hijab on a Muslim woman that they thought they understood completely, but if they'd talked to the woman, she understood it very differently? Or had they come into a, a, a real irreconcilable difference that both religious traditions would own? For instance, the divinity of Jesus. Mm. Um, and 
the skid marks are more helpful than the pleasant encounters in a lot of way if people have the courage mm-hmm. to examine the rubber on the road. Yeah. At the same time, as this uh, growing appreciation and respect for people walking different faith traditions, you kind of realize, I can't come from nowhere. I come from somewhere. Mm-hmm. And I will celebrate my own mm-hmm. faith story, my own tradition. Mm-hmm. And that's the authentic way to engage with the others, to, to come from somewhere yourself, not to be embarrassed or ashamed or because I'm a person who's been formed in faith since my teenage years now I told you earlier on the problem is I've been launched into this constant questioning so I hear from more and more people in their 20s and 30s who say I don't have a tradition I did not grow up in a household Hmm. that that attended any kind of worship service there were no sacred books at my house I'm starting from zero here what do I do you know certainly when you talk to someone who's formed in a faith um, it's far better to have a language and to understand and use that language at some depth yeah. because it'll give me a better way to connect to other people who are using their languages at some depth. But what do I say to people who have no tradition? What I'm saying more and more, though they're really, really um, confronting me on the only authentic way to enter mm-hmm. interreligious dialogue is dot, dot, dot. They're coming back to me and saying, no, um, we're looking at interspirituality and multiple religious identity, and we're not very far along with it yet, but, but it's not going to go away. So as a person of a certain age, I'm now adding that into my computer and going, oh, this is something to think about. Though I do say to a lot of them, then choose one. Throw a dart at a dartboard or find a tradition that, that the worldview most matches your own, but learn something at depth that transcends your own lifetime, or you'll be forever digging shallow wells. You know, And, and if, if you want some kind of depth in your life of spirit and community and commitment, it, it will behoove you to to become a student of some tradition that has been around longer than you will be. And one of the things you're able to do as a theologian and writer, because obviously there are many theologians who can't write. And I have and, never thought of myself as a theologian, but you go. <laughs> and there are many writers who are interested in theology. Uh, I put you in the category of Fred Beekner, who was one of the first people I knew who thought, ah. Oh, Okay, it's possible to make theological ideas, Mm. the language of faith, poetic Mm. and beautiful and alluring. Mm. So you, one of the things you do, well, as a preacher then, let's say, is you're comfortable in reimagining the text. Mm. So there's several examples of what used to be called, is it called called exposition? Exegesis, whatever it's called. Jews call it midrash. Okay, yeah, yeah. Where you take a famous scriptural story Mm. and say, well, that was the idea, Mm. it's... It's always been interpreted with. However, here's another one. Mm-hmm. And you interpret these in light of your, your this journey you've been on. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you remind us of one of those? Because I've forgotten. Well, let me point out, sometimes it's not offering another interpretation. It's going back to read a text that yeah. I thought I understood and finding there are some missing lines in there that I have for some yeah. inexplicable, deep yeah. psychological reason completely forgotten about. Yeah. So the the beauty, again, of going back to familiar texts with some tools of biblical exegesis and thoughtfulness yeah. you know, about how texts are formed and communicated, you know, the, the one that stands out immediately is Jesus' first sermon at his home synagogue in Nazareth 
where after which, I mean, he famously is almost thrown off a cliff. And I'd always been taught that that was because he'd stood up in synagogue and suggested that Messiah had come. He was the one. That, that, that God's, and he didn't say that. You know, what he did was he read a passage from Isaiah that said God's kingdom is coming. And there was not a word about that except today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. So I always heard that as Jesus' proclamation, I am Messiah, and people scurried him out and tried to throw him off the cliff. Wrong. Go back and read Luke 4, and you find out that, that first of all, he picked the fight. People were nodding and kind of loving him being there, sort of proud of the hometown guy. And then he started picking at them. Doubtless you'll say to me, you know, no prophets on. Doubtless you'll say to me. And you think, first of all, why is he in such an ill mood unless he can read everybody's minds? But then he quickly goes on to, to preach a sermon about how God doesn't belong to any one people. That there were plenty of widows and lepers in Israel when God decided to go visit a widow in Zarephath and heal a leper in Syria. That's what got him thrown off the cliff was this radical proclamation that no one owns God, I think. Mm -hmm. Now that's another interpretation, but it's yeah. born by the, te the text yeah. with those disappearing verses yeah. about what happened between the reading from Isaiah and the let's throw him off the cliff. So how come there's Midrash in Judaism and there isn't in Christianity? Well, my books call Holy Envy because there's so much I envy. And part of what I've learned to envy about a Jewish reading of sacred text is, first of all, it's not just Torah. It's umpteen volumes of Talmud, you know, which is rabbinical commentary on the text, which is as sacred as the text itself. But no list anywhere of what they believe. Uh, uh, hello. You know what they believe? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the mm -hmm. Lord is one. And, and there's more to the Shema, yeah, yeah. but it's a pretty simple declaration of yeah. monotheism. And yeah. beyond that, uh, uh, beliefs are quite difficult to come up with, though attachment to practice is easy. Beliefs about how one should practice yeah. you know, monotheism certainly uh, is there as well. But, but, but I'd love to claim back some Midrash, which doesn't play loose with the text, but it feels free to deal with the gaps in the text. What the text does not say often is as interesting as what it does say. And I think Christians have not been encouraged to make as much use of the gaps. You know, when Jesus says to Doubting Thomas, you don't think it's me? Put out your hand and touch me. There's nothing in the text to say how long it took. You know, and, and if you're not paying attention, you don't notice Thomas never did. He never did reach out his hand. So there's quite a play script there with a lot of body language and a lot of silence that, that reading the text doesn't give you. So I'm enormously interested in that. Though I don't think I can call it Christian Midrash without being appropriating in some way. Just, there's, mi just yeah. Midrash. Yeah, it's just Midrash. Towards the end of the book, it becomes clear to you that it's not the facts or the knowledge of these great religions that will stick with your students. It's the experience of some kind of, however brief, immersion in these other stories. And, and the field trips seem to be more influential than anything. Yeah, let's break it to readers and listeners alike. It took me many, many years to grade terrible final exams to realize that students were not going to leave my class with the four noble truths distinguished from the five pillars of Islam. They were going to mess all of that up, but they would never forget the people they'd met. And, and above all, they would never forget uh, that, that much that they had thought and much that they had been taught about people of other faiths was not trustworthy, that, that it had been upset in, uh, I would say, wonderful ways 
by their experiences during the semester. That's about the time I decided to retire because I could no longer write course objectives with measurable rubrics for grading papers when what I wanted to do was, I didn't want to blow students' minds, but I wanted them by their own choice to enter territory that might blow their minds. And the field trips were all optional, no one had to go. But once the students who went started bringing back their reports, everybody wanted on the bus. So it's about it's about um, experiencing the story of others rather than just learning about it. It's about meeting people on those journeys themselves. And because we don't want to make a new polarity out of that, yeah. or a new binary, let's say those two affect each other back yeah. and forth and back and forth. Yeah. As you and I were talking yeah. about earlier, yeah. the experience affects the beliefs, the, yeah. the doctrines and the people yeah. go back and forth and back and forth. So it's a dialectic. Would you like to see more people who are engaged in different faith communities sharing the worship hmm. in each other's faith communities? In other words, dipping in and out of each other's stories. Well, see, I should turn that on you um, to ask about your Friday experiences yeah. at the Masjid. But more importantly, I would like to see people of different faith communities looking around their neighborhood and saying, what what, what playground needs to be cleaned up? Yeah. And what's going on with the teenagers over there? And what difference could we make about you know this or that? In, in other words, rather than focusing on theology and worship, could we not look around the places yeah. that we live and say, what could we do together here yeah. that none of us can do alone nearly as well? Well, and, and I borrow that somewhat from Ibu Patel, who is the founder of the Interfaith Youth Corps in the U.S., and he gets young people, mostly college age, together, and, and this is his emphasis. What can you do together that none of you can do alone in as effective as a way? But in other words, let's turn towards the living communities in which we live and see what good there could be done there, because in some ways to, to go to each other's yeah. You know, it, yes, in addition, perhaps, yeah. to visiting yeah. each other's sacred places. Yeah. But sometimes I wish that I had simply gone to a basketball team yeah. where um, the team from a Muslim school, yeah. you know, played against the, the students from a Christian school. Or I wish we'd invited an entire Indian family to class to talk to us about the challenges of living in the U.S. In other words, mm. beyond the sacred spaces, how does this life get lived in the world? Yeah. And, yeah. and what kind of cooperation might we be able to invent there? Yeah. And it's in, it's in the common practice that people will find the commonality of their, of their journeys. Those who want to. Yeah. Because yeah. The, the, you know, every time a student said all religions are alike or, yeah. or they are completely opposed to one another, neither is true. Yeah. Yeah. But you can always find a version of golden rule or, yeah. or neighbor. It's, yeah. the way, it's the way the divine sneaks the loophole in. Yeah. There's always something about treating the neighbor as you, as you treat the self or the members of your own tribe. So we can get together on that, I'm quite sure, and dealing with our destructive emotions. You mentioned that one of the reasons you left the full-time priesthood I guess that's running a church, was it? Well, I'm full-time priest now, but I'm not a full-time congregational pastor. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I'm non-stipendiary. But you said you felt your own living water was running dry. Mm. Has this brought you to a, you know, a new stream? Yeah, yes, with yeah. all the existential dizziness that comes from yeah. drinking out of different wells, and you'll hear in that metaphor 
you know, that I'm of the perennial philosophy, which is it's a great underground river yeah. that, that the great religions dig their wells into. <laughs> and, and that was not a statement about the Episcopal Church per se, but because I was ordained clergy working full-time in a parish, I rarely got out of yeah. my Christian container. And so there were people in the congregation who had much broader experience with people of many and no faith than I did. So that's what got dry for me, was being contained. Uh, in, in quite that professional a way. And, and there are people who are find ways to be rejuvenated by that, but I was parched. Yeah, yeah. And you're no longer parched? No, now I'm just confused. <laughs> <laughs> I'm existentially dizzy. But the place you are at is what Richard Raw calls the edge of the inside. I love that phrase. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us what that means? Well, and we've got a columnist named David Brooks in the U.S. who writes a lot, and he picked up on that phrase in a column he wrote. But he talked about the virtues of being on the inside edge, you know, of an organization. Because if you're at the core, he said, you'll enjoy much more company and, and many more accolades, you know, to get nearer. Sometimes I think of it as the yolk of the egg. But out, out near the edges, you are near the door. You're near the door to see what's going on outside, and you're near the door to pay attention to those who just stick their heads inside. Um, so I have no interest in leaving Christian tradition or priesthood, you know, or or the Christian church of which I'm a part. But but nor do I at this point have a lot of interest in moving closer to the center. That may come later, for all I know. Closer I get to being dead, I may get very interested in going back, you know, t towards the right for the burial of the dead and find things in there I haven't looked at in a while. Um, but right now, I I very much enjoy the position of being at the outside edge, and I have found so many clergy and bishops and people of good faith at least winking at me and saying, yes, but we can't yet. And I keep thinking, what would happen if you brought that vibrancy back to the center? What do they mean by we can't yet? Children, grandchildren, uh, pillars of their churches. But what can't they do yet? Uh, wander quite so far, wonder quite so much. As you have been able to do. Or put it in books. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have this problem too. The problem is, for instance, go back to the language of contempt. One, If one has 10 books of sermons out, you go back pretty quickly and think, what have I put in print? You know, so I think it really would have more to do with being published. Mm -hmm. You know, that there are things I go public with that people do not feel ready to go public with. And this isn't about leaving. Again, mm -hmm. I've mm -hmm. wrote a book called Leaving Church, so mm -hmm. people always think that's what I mean. Yeah. But about wondering out loud with each other so that we know we're not alone in our wondering. Mm -hmm. There's so many questions people have. And if I've gotten one constant comment back on Holy Envy, it's been, I've always thought that. I've always wanted to ask that. I've always wondered that. But I never felt like I could. Yeah. And in fact, you mentioned somewhere in the book of it's a pretty obvious thing, but it's a good thing to say, which is that although we're all raised in different or no religious traditions, before we're raised in all that, we're human. Mm -hmm. It's just us. Mm -hmm. What we have in common is so much more greater than all these things we take on. What we're about is survival and then living a rewarding life. I'm having children and and partnering up and being in terrific grief and pain and yeah. sickness and joy yeah. and <clears throat> my my taxi driver today was celebrating his 64th birthday and I sang to him in the taxi. <laughs> and, uh, but you just did another huge flip. Yeah. Is Earlier in my life I would have told you the purpose of humanity was to serve religion, you know, the, the, or faith. Yeah. And now I think if a faith 
isn't serving the greater good of humanity, it, it's time to question what it's all about. If it's only about building its own numbers, that may be necessary to be of more good to the wider community. But I do truly believe, we almost started out this way, that if, if there are Christian beliefs or assurances or practices that do nothing to equip me to move into a larger swath of humanity, uh, then I'm sad about that. Seems to me the best reason to be Christian is to is to learn how to be in deeper community with people who are not Christian instead of less. With all people. Yeah, with all people. Yeah. With all people. What yeah. I always hear with audiences right now is with all people except the people who don't agree with me. <laughs> with all people except the people who cancel out my vote at the polls. With all people except the fundamentalists in my tradition. So, you know, the, another big trick with Holy Envy was to realize more and more and more more people would rather go out to lunch with the Dalai Lama than someone in their own congregations with whom they violently disagree. Mm. So pretty quickly, if we're going to talk about all these ways of, of widening the tent and being neighborly towards larger um, numbers of people, anyone who reads Jesus' Sermon on the Mount or the Plain is eventually going to come face to face with, and that includes the enemy. Yeah. Talking about the Sermon on the Plain, you talk, you talk towards the end of the book about the common ground church. You're, you're exploring churches mm. outside of your own tradition. Mm. <clears throat> and what, what have you learned, uh, pluses and minuses? What, what, what are you finding which are signs of hope, which are signs of vitality, which are signs of promise for the future? Let's do emphasize what you just said. I didn't know how to end this book until I went to a service in downtown Atlanta in a city park with a lot of people still sleeping in sleeping bags from the night before to welcome a new vicar. Um, and it had no roof and had no walls and the bishop was there and it, 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 it's called Church of the Common Ground and that ended up being the perfect last chapter of the book and, and people will have to read it to find out why. But to go back to your question, let's tag, uh, to you're in my meeting at Greenbelt and I came to this country having heard everywhere that Christianity was in huge decline here. And then at Greenbelt on the Sunday, we were at communion. There had to be 10,000 people there. And that knocked me over and, and got me thinking whether we weren't talking about post-church instead of post-Christian culture. So now take it back to my country where Wild Goose is a spinoff of Greenbelt. And last summer I went for the first time to meet with 4,000 um, largely millennial Christians who call themselves post-evangelical, re-evangelical, deconstructed evangelicals, or, or re, re I, the names are amazing, but I was so exhilarated by this huge crowd of people with a lot of hangers on my age who just were feeding off the energy of young people saying, we love scripture, we love Jesus, we love our songs, we love our enthusiasm, we love our belief in the movement of the Holy Spirit, but we're done with the old politics, we're done with the gender exclusion, you know, we're done with the words to the old songs and we're rewriting the words. But this kind of reinvention that is, is underway, I'm on the sidelines of that offering my services in any way that can be helpful, if only to say, don't look to your elders because we don't know. We don't know how you're gonna go forward. But the numbers are large and it's post-church. It's not post-Christian, which tells me that people are defining church in ways that are also up for revision. Does a church always have a roof and buildings? No, of course it doesn't. You know, But how are communities enlivened by the Spirit gathering in the most unexpected places? 
you talking about language and hymns and that kind of thing you're saying these sometimes these groups are rewriting them because you also mentioned in a lot of our traditional liturgy hymnody or in some of it anyway you now see things you think do i want to say that mm. do we want to say that what signals are we sending or worse yet i sing them and i just feel crushed by the words i've just sung to where i almost just end up humming because i do love the tune but the words are are just don't come anywhere near my heart anymore i almost think we should publish um annual hymnals because <laughs> the biggest fights come up over prayer books and hymnals mm. don't they the biggest fights about the changes in christian culture yeah was there a phrase about disowning faith somewhere towards the end just disowning god disowning god was that one of the chapters yeah yeah maybe i've covered it but what was what were you addressing there was that was it uh disowning the idea of god you had before or well let's go back to jesus sermon yeah. at nazareth yeah. that idea that that no religious tradition owns God. Yeah. For Christians, it might be quite interesting to learn about the other Jesus, you know, who has a rich life in Islam, a rich life in Buddhism, a rich life in Hinduism, but not as Christians know him. So Christians can get quite upset. Think even of Riza Aslan's book on Zealot, you know, and how offended some Christians were that a Muslim would dare write about Jesus. But it turns out Jesus has a rich life in many other traditions, but he's dressed in different clothes and he's sitting in different postures. Um, so even disowning Jesus would be an interesting new way of thinking of it. But what I was trying to get at with that controversial title um, was that there's nothing more frightening to me than someone who believes he or she owns God, understands clearly what God says and wants, and is ready at any time to step up and be the spokesman for the correct understanding of, of the God whom they own instead of being owned by. So, so that, that's what that title is about. So, so that one of the things the quest has alerted you to is a, a greater provisionality. Um, of almost every day. And yeah. let's put it this way, it, that, it, yes, of provisionality about my statements, about my definitions, but above all, um, my provisionality about my firm grasp on divine truth so that I've started calling the path I'm on the sacred way of unknowing and fortunately I have lots and lots of company all the way back to the desert I'm calling the desert parents now instead of the mothers yeah. and fathers yeah. but but I think to be on the sacred path of unknowing is a faithful way yeah. but there are many Christians who've only heard that called an unfaithful way yeah. that you need to be on the sacred way of knowing and again, it's not a polarization, it's not an either-or, but, but the sacred way of unknowing is a sacred way. And, and I would love to uh, be helpful to anybody who has trouble being affirmed on that way. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode.